The next few minutes of WGTD's morning show are going to be spent exploring an absolutely extraordinary, harrowing, dark story from the early 20th century, something which unfolded in a small, remote village in Hungary in which uh, a midwife uh, engaged in what can only be described as a circle of arsenic poisonings for a number of different reasons. And ultimately, she left in her wake all kinds of death. And also, there were other women in this village who, in a sense, took up the same possibility, poisoning with arsenic, uh, husbands, abusive parents, uh, in certain cases, uh, their babies uh, that were unwanted in a sense. And it is a story that touches on all kinds of facets of, of human life and the way in which we interact with one another and in the way in which people that, in a sense, have very little, if any, agency over their own lives seek out that agency in any way that they can. It is a fascinating story told very, very well in a new book called The Angel Makers, Arsenic, a Midwife, and Modern History's Most Astonishing Murder Ring. It is the story of this village midwife known as Auntie Susie and the story of a number of women who, in a sense, followed her example, guided by her to some extent. And... uh, before it's all done, again, there is a, a host of deaths in this small village, and a number of women and a couple of men seen as accomplices ultimately go on trial. And all of it told in this really fascinating story, very well told by Patty McCracken, an award-winning journalist. Perhaps you have seen her work in the Wall Street Journal, in the, the Smithsonian Magazine, perhaps in the Chicago Tribune, where she was at the Foreign National Desk for many years. Uh, This book is published by William Morrow, The Angel Makers. Patty McCracken, we welcome you to The Morning Show. I'm so happy to be here. It's a really incredible story. It is possible that some of our listeners have heard something of it, but this seems like one of those astonishing stories that is not nearly as well-known as we might assume it to be. Uh, To what would you attribute that, the fact that this story is not as well-known as we might assume it to be? You know, I wondered the same thing when I first learned about it. And the only thing I can really think is that these crimes came to light and were tried in... um, They came to light in the summer of 1929 and what happened in October of 29. So we had, you know, worldwide stock market crash. And then we had um, World War II after that. And then in Europe, all those troubles started in the early 30s. And so I think it just got silenced by everything else that was happening after that. Um, But at the time, it was covered by every major newspaper. The New York Times covered it. Um, German papers covered it. Uh, English papers, British papers, French papers. It was huge. Um, the Chicago newspaper of the time covered it, the Daily, Chicago Daily Tribune. 
it was just a huge, huge, huge story. As a matter of fact, uh, t- towards that point, I want to read just a moment from an excerpt from a New York Times article that you quote at the outset of your book. So this is in March of 1930, written by one John McCormick, Vienna bureau chief. He writes, the name Nagriev, that's this small village in Hungary, the name Nagriev has spread through the whole world. The notoriety has made all Hungary uncomfortable. It has been bad propaganda abroad. It has been a shock at home to find, within 60 miles of the capital, a neighborhood which might better belong to the darkest period of the Middle Ages. It makes a strange tale in 1930. So indeed, this did attract attention at the time, but as you, I think, probably uh, properly suggest, uh, events uh, of a far more monumental nature probably kind of thrust this uh, aside more quickly than it otherwise would have been. And the story, to a large extent, became, in a sense, lost or largely forgotten. Yes, that's the only thing I can think of. And when you read that quote by John McCormick, or he was known to his friends as Jack McCormick, it's absolutely stunning. It's absolutely stunning. And you can hear in his his portrayal, how stunned he is and how he's trying to get this across. Like, how could this, how could this happen? And he also um, suggests what was going on in Hungary itself and how aghast they were, particularly in Budapest and some other, you know, larger cities. They were horrified to know that this was going on in their midst. Tell us how you first came across the story of this poisoning ring in this small village in Hungary. How did you initially come across this story? Well, like any journalist, uh, you just are always have your ear and eyes out for a story. And one day I was just wandering the back roads of the Internet, and I came across this, I think it was a rather short story. It wasn't very long. It was kind of tongue-in-cheek. And it was written in a, I think it was from a British newspaper outlet. And I thought, that's, that's odd. Um, and at the time, I was living in a small village in Austria. And I was about 150 miles from the Hungarian village where it happened in Nagyarov. And my neighbor was a photographer and I knocked on his door and I said, Harold, do you want to take a road trip with me? And so he said, yes, absolutely. And so I hired a translator and we went there and expected to stay for the day and stayed much longer because it was just um, just absolutely intriguing. Just we just you just couldn't believe it. And you couldn't believe that you were really in a place where this happened and everybody in the village are descendants I shouldn't say everybody but most people you can assume are descendants of victims or perpetrators or in many cases both so it was certainly a story that stayed with me Hmm. so explain to our listeners what it took for you to uncover as much information as you evidently did, because your book, The Angel Makers, is a fascinating and, and thorough retelling of this story. Uh, 
where did you go? To what lengths did you have to go in order to uncover uh, the, the, the treasure trove of, of information which you were ultimately able to access? Yeah, well, this um, is a reason some things take years to write, <laughs> and this took years and years, you know. Um, I, what it felt like is that I went fishing and I caught a whale, because I started by writing an article, and it was a 1,500-word article. And after the article was finished, it felt, okay. Um, but it was hard to move on to other things. And I kept coming back to this. There's feels like there's more there. I don't feel like, I feel like maybe I just scratched the surface. And so I started poking around. And by poking around, I do mean on the Internet, but then when I really got serious about writing a book, um, that just takes the hard work. And it takes the hard work of um, talking to experts, uh, reading voluminous amounts about the era, reading about the liter- reading literature from that time. Um, I had my assistant I hired was a historian specializing in that specific region of Solnok. And he was a very, is a very detail-oriented man, and he understood exactly what I was going for. And it took a few tries to get the assistant that was right for me. And so when I found him, I was very grateful because he could also, to get that level of detail, what movie was playing, I need to know all that stuff, whether I use it or not. Like, for example, um, I don't know if this, but... Fatty Arbuckle's movie, The Woman Haters, was playing during, you know, when one of the trials was going on. Hmm. And, um, you know, one of the trials was moved to match to be on um, Luca's Day, which is a a day that is when um, kind of related to witches and things. So these are all these details take a lot of time. It takes reading. It takes interviewing. It takes talking with medical historians and um, historians of, you know, reading about midwives of the area and just, you know, boots on the ground, just mm. being there. I moved to Solnok, which is the town where the trials took place. I moved there for a few months um, for proximity and just to sort of what what's it like here? What can I see here even, you know, 100, almost 100 years later? Tell us about the nature of the materials that you found in the archives there, uh, from the from the sounds of it, it was not uh, the kind of research experience that one often has in this modern day, uh, where you're sort of clicking on this or pulling this volume off the shelf. It sounds like you were confronted with a very different, much more sort of primitive and voluminous archive, uh, and you had to make sense of it. I mean, describe kind of the nature of what you were looking for, and and just what kind of a challenge it was to make sense of it all. Um, Well, when I went in there, we went into the archives of Solnok for the the county, and they were wonderful because they just gave us a room, they meaning me and my assistant, and we went in there, and all of a sudden they just started bringing in box after box after box. And I'm talking cardboard, you know, boxes, moving boxes. And so everything was, it was all paper. 
everything was just paper. Some of it was handwritten. Um, these were handwritten um, gendarme or police reports um, written in this lovely script, sometimes scribbled. Um, and my, my assistant would read it to me and he would you know, translate it into English and read it to me, and I would sit next to him, and I would type the translation. And we did this day after day after day, week after week. And um, so there was a lot of that. There was a lot of material. It just, yeah, box after box, like, go at it. <laughs> and they closed the door, and we'd go at it for, you know, eight or nine hours a day, and then we'd, you know, go at it again the next day. It was just, I mean, like being in you know, your great grandmother's old attic somewhere and you discover some treasure. <laughs> We're speaking with Patty McCracken and we are talking about her book, The Angel Makers, Arsenic, a Midwife and Modern History's Most Astonishing Murdering. Uh, the story told in The Angel Makers uh, took place uh, in the small rural village of, of Nagriev, Hungary and uh, involved uh, at its heart a village midwife, uh, uh, Susie Fazikis, uh, known as Auntie Susie. Um, before we talk about who she was and what it meant to be a midwife in a place like Nagriev, maybe you could describe this village itself. Uh, just how small a village are we talking about uh, and and. What was life like there before all of this uh, began to unfold? Yeah, well, I would preface that by saying that um, it was typical in a certain way. I mean, when I'm looking at it today, going into that village, it's a certain way typical of villages in the region. It's a little, it's a hamlet, it's a farming hamlet very close-knit communities. I had run across them before in um, Romania in my work as a journalist, and you just have these very isolated communities, but um, they don't feel necessarily they're isolated. They feel, you know, they have very active um, communities. And I think that was similar for Nagyarev at this time, meaning before this time, this is a very, um, very, very removed village. I think what what makes this village distinctive in its isolation is that about 50 years prior to this, these activities starting, um, the river was regulated. And so the regulation of the river pretty much choked off the village from the rest of the plains. Hmm. So it was almost like a moat around it. And this made it very, very difficult for people to come in and out of it. And it also, um, you know, they didn't have any police force there. Um, so because the police were sort of had a region that was in a neighboring village, but to get to that neighboring village was not easy, you know, <laughs> so... So ultimately, they had no law enforcement there. Hmm. Um, but it was it was a typical, very small farming village, living on these subsistence farms. Um, but they were they worked like any other village. They had dances on Sundays. They um, 
had big celebrations when they married. They had um, big celebrations at harvest and when they're bringing in their wine. I mean, they just they operated just like every everybody operates, you know, mm. just normal lives. But you, um, a lot of there was a lot of poverty. Excuse, sorry, there was a lot of poverty and a lot of not a lot of access to education. At one point uh, in the very first chapter of the book, you say Nagriev was a village of doors without latches or locks, uh, which also kind of speaks to life in a tiny village at that point in time, which probably very few people had anything that anyone else would would want to steal. Uh, but, I mean, it, it is a small and relatively peaceful community. Although, of course, the closer we look, we see kind of a darker side to, to life in Nagriev, and nothing unique to Nagriev, but in terms of, of the kind of lives that many of the women there were living, and in particular, the kind of abuse that uh, many of them were suffering uh, at the hands of their spouses. Yes, and when you get to this, the the lack of locks and just that element of trust that was there, um, it is key, and I think that's exactly right what you say, that um, it's not that they didn't have anything worth stealing. There's, there was poverty there, but they, they, had, um, they had everything they needed, and there not, wasn't necessarily always a want for more. And so they they had a, an element of trust that was there. Um, but I kind of remind me again what you were saying. The uh, but uh, although we're painting in in some ways a somewhat idyllic picture of a small yep. quiet village, but there is as we look closer at this story, the specter yep. of of abuse uh, uh, yes. that some of these women were suffering. Uh, at the hands of their of their husbands. Yes, it's absolute. And it's worth saying that they didn't invent this method. And this was something that it was called um, arsenic was well known as a tool for getting rid of, <laughs> so to speak, um, relatives that were it, putting people in harm's way or otherwise. It's called an inheritance powder, I think, in, in France. But it was just the scale to which they did it. Hmm. But yes, the abuse was um, the abuse was uh, strong and getting stronger. I think what what compelled them to do this in such numbers as um, as they began to do it was um, their men were going off to war and they were fighting in horrific, horrific, horrific battles. And so these young men were coming home in great need of mental health care and great need of um, physical care. And, you know, they weren't getting the help they needed either. So I think that just added to already a situation of abuse that um, women were experiencing just because that it's, it's cultural. You know, women are often abused in marriages. Um, so... It just made it worse. It just compounded the problem that they had a lot of young men coming back um, and drowning their problems in alcohol and becoming more violent. They've been made more violent by war. We all know how that goes. 
and they were coming home and just expressing that violence. At least that's my take on it. Right. We're speaking with Patty McCracken about her book, The Angel Makers, Arsenic, a Midwife, and Modern History's Most Astonishing Murder Ring. Well, it's time for us to talk about the midwife that is mentioned in the subtitle of your book, one Susie Fazekas, uh, known affectionately as Auntie Susie. So Auntie Susie was the midwife of this little village of Nagriev. And one thing that surprised me... uh, when uh, we first learn of exactly who she was, is that you describe her as the village's official midwife. You tell us uh, she had lived there for more than 15 years. The village council had given her the home when she was appointed the official village midwife. She also received a healthy salary, though she could still exact fees from her patients when she wanted to. Her agreement with the council forbade her from charging the poorest among the populace, but Auntie Susie always found a way to be comfortably reimbursed. I, I guess I, when, when one thinks of a midwife, particularly in this kind of setting, I just immediately imagined it to be something much, in a sense, folksier and informal, but it sounds like it was a very specific position uh, to which someone would be appointed and entrusted with certain responsibilities. Am I understanding that correctly? Yeah, and I was surprised, um, like you were at the beginning, and when I was speaking with this in the early days to my neighbors in Austria, they were like, oh yeah, that was completely normal. And I, was, I learned a lot from them, because they they just uh, validated that absolutely. They set up, you know, through the, through the eons, midwives were very, very central to village life in Europe, and she is very typical, aside aside from her darker deeds, she's very, very typical of any village anywhere. The midwife was the de facto doctor. They were the de facto vet, the the counselor. Um, They were often fortune tellers like Auntie Susie. So they were held often in high esteem and also... Um, yeah, they were appointed by the council. There were other midwives in the village, but they were unofficial and they weren't, you know, they didn't have, you know, weren't given the kind of, um, you know, job and salary and, you know, being hired and fired like she was. So it was really unusual. So, you know, they depended on her. It, it lets you know how central she was to their lives. They don't have a, um, they don't have a doctor. They don't have a hospital. Um, she was the absolute, really central character for them. And they would go to her for everything, for hernias, for um, for just about anything that can be treated. And she was quite intelligent. She was an what we would call an herbalist. She had quite a significant knowledge of plant medicine and used it very effectively to help the um, the farmers you know, and, and everybody else and the animals as well. It was it was fascinating for me to discover that, but it was absolutely true and very consistent with um, roles of midwives in Europe. It was very interesting. And also it's worth noting that they were also um, family planners. So it was if you didn't want to have, you know, 20 children, 
the midwife was there to help you plan your families. Hmm. And so that's what she did. At some points in the book, uh, Auntie Susie is referred to as a wise woman. And that also Mm -hmm. sounds like a a term that was often utilized. And I think it means even beyond the fact that she was evidently intelligent and well-read in in certain fields. What What did that designation mean? Yeah, a wise woman would mean um, really almost shamanistic, so someone who um, maybe some people would call them seers, or, you know, that that would be a reference to her um, card reading and her divining information. And that's, that is another thing that they were called, the wise women. So they were... They were midwives, but they had a bit of mystical um, aura to them. Hmm. So at least as, as, as clearly as you were able to determine, uh, when did Auntie Susie, Susie Afazikas, at what point did she begin engaging in this practice of utilizing arsenic to and the lives of, of, in some cases, men in the village, in some cases, uh, un, unwanted newborns. Uh, when did yeah. this begin? It was, it was really hard to tell when it actually began, and that kind of goes back to this is not, she didn't invent this. This was being done, you know, in Europe to for women who felt that they had no other alternative. But I do think it began in earnest. Again, it seemed to coincide with the men coming back from war, and um, not all men coming back from war, but lives being turned upside down by more violent men. More violence, I should say more violence than the women were already accustomed to. Because it's it's worth noting that it was very common to keep um, what was called an obedience strap by the door for um, in homes for you know if if you know the woman got out of line you'd you know take the strap so this is and this was not unique to Hungary this is not unique to Europe this is what you know how it was um, with marriages. But or with those situations, but I think with it just seemed to just pick up a pace, and it picked up a pace um, much more strongly also when Spanish flu came along, and I think it was a perfect cover because arsenic poisoning kind of takes different routes with different people in the bodies. It's almost like COVID. It has, you know, different um, symptoms will come up. And that was kind of the same with the Spanish, with Spanish flu. And so I think that allowed a lot of cover for things. And it just got stronger and stronger as those next few years went. The, the urge to do this when there wasn't get, there was no consequence. So the women got bolder as there was no consequence. And I think as we've already touched on, uh, one one situation that was maybe, if not unique to this situation in Nagrev, was maybe uh, uncommon, was the fact that 
Auntie Susie, because this village was so remote and because she was not only the official village midwife, but also, for all intents and purposes, also the most present doctor there, kind of the de facto doctor of the village, that she was, in a sense, in a position uh, to, I suppose, kind of cover up these deeds or to frame them in such a way that there would be little, if any, suspicion of wrongdoing having been done. Do I remember that correctly? Yeah, that's absolutely right. So they, the doctor would come once a week, and he would have already have appointments set for him. So, you know, if you're getting sick on any other day but a Tuesday, you know, <laughs> what are you going to do? That being said, he would come once a week when he could get there. So this village was so remote and the roads were so, so poor that there would be during most of the winter, he couldn't, he couldn't get there in time to see patients. So he would just not come for months at a time. So that's absolutely right that she was able to mask um, the killings because she was also the person who could appoint um, the coroner. And so she could say, they'd say, oh, what did she die? What did they die of? Oh, they died of um, a stroke. What did they die of? Oh, they died of a heart attack. So there wasn't really much. Nobody was really looking and investigating the bodies to see how these people were dying. And there definitely was suspicion. Um, and it's it's important to say, even though the book is central um, central to the midwife, there were other women in the village that were also doing this, um, but they weren't doing it for profit like Susie was. For her, it was a business. Um, but people were very suspicious, and they were um, trying – to do what they could to alert authorities. Um, And obviously they weren't being noticed. But most people were, I think like most people would be, is they would say, well, you just go into denial. You think my my neighbor wouldn't do that to her husband or that that couldn't be, you know. So they just, it was so, they just couldn't really believe it. Hmm. So it continued to happen. It would be interesting, I think, to uh, have you describe exactly the process that we are talking about, uh, at least under most circumstances in, in which this poisoning would occur. First of all, the means by which the poison itself, the arsenic, uh, would be procured, and then at least most typically the way in which it would be administered. And and I wonder how different that process of, of administering it was, uh, whether we are talking about uh, the killing of, for instance, uh, a full-grown adult versus uh, the uh, the ending of a life of uh, of a of a newborn or 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 aborting uh, a pregnancy. Yeah, well, um, the midwife would trot off to the local shop and she would buy bundles of flypaper and then she would go back home to her house, to her kitchen, and she would distill the arsenic from the flypaper. 
So if anybody is thinking of doing this at home, they no longer put arsenic on flypaper. So, um, but she would, it was a painstaking process. It took her quite, it was a long process to do it. And she would basically, once it was distilled, she would bottle it. And then she would keep a vial in her apron pocket. And she would go around and she would say, she would kind of sniff out trouble sometimes. And she would say, you know, why are you bothering with him? I have a solution. And she would literally pull a solution out of her apron pocket. Here it is. And she, she knew the science of it. Um, I don't think it worked in every case, um, just as she thought it would. But, you know, a dosage would be different for a 200-pound man than it would be for, you know, a 130-pound man. And um, she would just deliver it that way. She would also say that it was, preferably, it was better if it was delivered in a soup. Um, But wine was often the means by which she did it, or brandy, some kind of alcohol. There's no not really a traceable smell or taste to arsenic, um, but she had her favorite delivery methods. And, yeah, and I think with the, you know, with the infants, um, I sort of hate to put the infants in the same category because it is a different, somewhat of a different situation. And I don't want your readers to think that there's um, so many cases of this in the book, but when she, when she did do it, it was just a, t- a touch to the lips. And it was to um, as quick as possible, so it would be as painless as possible in those cases. Um, there were some times when she would misjudge it, and not for the infants, but for the adults. And the process would be more long and drawn out. And she would, you know, sometimes have trouble figuring out why it was taking so long. But usually she had it, usually she set it up, and she would even set it up around, um, you know, she was very crafty because she learned that the when the doctor would come into town during the times he could get there, she would give a do- enough of a dosage for the person to sort of have a, to sort of set the precedent. This person is sick, you know, this person has a, a stomach ache or is, you know, you know, some other symptoms. And then the next week, um, the symptoms are a little bit worse. And then the next week, you know, the person passes away. So she would, she was kind of crafty in figuring out that, you know, you couldn't just do this in 48 hours and the person is dead. She would have to sort of create this appearance of an illness. Hmm. So she knew what she was doing. That is, that is for certain. Tell us about when suspicions began to arise to the point where where actually uh, Auntie Susie was, in a sense, questioned and ultimately apprehended for the first time, for the first of, of a number of times, actually. Yes. Well, without giving too much away, right. um, yeah, the doctor at the time, the, another doctor came in, he was like, there's something going on here. But he was sort of, he was sort of on the right path, but not quite on the right path. And so he was raising, um, he was raising the alarm bells, and he was very, very worried about something that was going on in the village. He didn't know, he wasn't 
understanding what was going on. He had no idea there were murders going on. He thought there was something else going on. And so he's, he's like, we're just, you know, we don't need midwives anyway. We've got a hospital coming. We just get, let's get rid of midwives and get rid of this way. And we will, you know, she's an abortionist and we don't need abortionists anymore, you know. And so suspicions were raised uh, in that regard. And um, I think I'll maybe leave it at that because I don't want to give too much away. Sure. But it was people going, people going down the wrong path. And, you know, just, you know, intent, well-intentioned, but, you know, oops, you're not seeing it right. right in front of you. I actually want to circle back to something that you just kind of touched on. Uh, I believe when you're talking about the certain doctor that came to the village, we are talking about the younger Dr. Zagedi. And uh, mm-hmm. earlier in the book, references made to the elder Dr. Zagedi, that would be... The, the father, and that's the doctor who would only uh, be able to come once a week, if that. And it's one of the reasons why Auntie Susie then, in, a, in effect, served as the village's de, de facto doctor. You tell us a little later in the book when his son, the younger Dr. Zagetti, comes on the scene uh, that he is coming to Nagriev with... Uh, sort of a, an, an interesting assignment from the authorities in, in Budapest and in a sense to try to take Nagriev uh, into the 20, 20th century and into kind of the medical mainstream. It's so fascinating to think about this going on, probably in villages uh, besides Nagriev, but particularly in this one. Uh, tell us more about this push to modernize and... Uh, and, and what you uncovered about what that process was like. Yeah, that came about really at the end of um, the war, basically. And it was, you know, I, I don't know where their funding came from, but certainly their motivation came at the, at the end of the war. And when you look at Budapest, um, Budapest uh, was such a tragedy in the war because they had no, they had no resources. They had um, no, they didn't even have band-aids. They had just paper that they would, you know, put bandages on. And I think that it kind of reached a critical mass. And so it was one of those things that, you know, the end of the war brought was like, we've got to, we've just got to do something. And so they did. And they made this effort, and it was also a, a hygiene effort, and a, um, they would send these mobile units out. Um, it's, I don't know if they ever got as far as um, these such remote villages, but they were trying to bring more um, education and more modernization such as it is. Um, but I would say that what they were doing in the process was Auntie Susie's nefarious motives aside, she was quite skilled and she did know a lot of what she was doing. So they were bringing doctors and they, they created a midwife institute in Solnope, but people like Auntie Susie and other midwives um, were actually, I'd kind of have to say my opinion, in my opinion, they were at that time much more skilled than the doctors at 
you know, these institutes that were coming up because they had ages and ages of delivering babies. And a lot of these doctors didn't have any, you know, they had very little experience. But the intention was absolutely to modernize. And I think it was really one of those results after the war of they had, I mean, I'm just conjecture, but they had possibly learned a lot about, you know, um, when you're put in that situation, you, you learn a lot. And they just wanted to sort of just, let's get this push. It's time for us to do this. Hmm. And I think that was going on everywhere. Hmm. What's quite interesting in the way you describe uh, as as uh, Auntie Susie is apprehended for the first time. And uh, first of all, you, you give a very, very vivid description of the way uh, rumors began uh, spreading through Nagriev about just, you know, what the suspicions were surrounding uh, the, the midwife and, and, and so on. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then a little later on, when she is actually back in Nagriev after maybe being questioned for the first time, uh, you write this, the truth was for every villager who crossed to the other side of the road when they saw her coming, there was yet one more woman furtively rapping at her kitchen window. It was a core mm-hmm. of women that continued to grow. In other words, that even even as rumors swirled about what the midwife was doing, there were certain people in the village horrified by it <laughs> who would cross on the other mm-hmm. side of the street and others who were actually drawn to her out of what they felt was the, 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 what the, the kind of help that they needed and that they knew they could receive from her. That's a really intriguing picture. Yeah, well, desperation will make you do things, you know. So I think they, I, I wish I could sit down and talk with them about that, but I feel like... Um, these these were desperate women who were in very difficult situations, and um, all I can say is that they they didn't do what they wanted to do. They did what they felt like they had to do. You know, these are women with children to protect, and um, I, I still feel for them. I mean, a lot of them were, you know, there's a few that are portrayed in the book that clearly... Um, don't deserve our sympathies. But the vast majority, I think, you know, in a situation where you have no rights, you're not being listened to by the authorities, you're scared of the person in the house with you, and they're bigger and stronger than you, you know, mm-hmm. you're going to, you're in a desperate situation. Right. It's the, the, that classic television film, The Burning Bed. I mean, it is in a yeah. sense that that kind of scenario, or at least in, in, in many cases. And you're right to say that yeah. that's also not the story in, in every single mm-hmm. case. And that in some, yeah. some cases we're talking about something very different. How difficult mm-hmm. was it for you to write this book in terms of framing these stories and of, of, of what these women were doing uh, in, in the sense of... of how how to frame their their situations and uh to how much to allow them to be sympathetic figures uh i mean i i'm thinking that had to be a, a very delicate in a sense balancing act that you were that you were walking as the the, the author here um 
thank you for bringing that up. I, I think it was. And I felt like it was a very difficult situation because you have some that are nefarious and very difficult characters to even write about. But then you have the vast majority that, to some sense, I felt a deep responsibility to them because I did feel like they were not, um, that they would not have done this unless they were being, um, they had no other choice. And in some situations, I felt like, you know, there's certain ones that you feel like they didn't have a choice and the choice was made for them by the midwife. So I think it was, it was more or less, once I came to fully understand, well, fully have full knowledge of their individual situations and reading the gendarme reports and all the other stuff, I could sort of understand them as much as I could as a person, you know, who they were. Um, that came through. I felt, I felt the obli- my obligation, I think I felt, or my, the delicate one was, the delicate ones were, um, there's a woman in there, Anna, I think, who won't get too much into it, but she is responsible for certain things. Um, and it, it's it's difficult because you just have to walk that line, and you also have to walk that line for the reader. Like, how much is the reader going to tolerate of one murder after another after another? Um and and so I think it just has to be just treated, um, just each case had to be treated separately. And to try to treat it um, in a sense with, I mean, the word, I don't know what word comes to mind, but I treat it with as much um, compassion for both the victims and the perpetrators to the degree that it was merited. My my first job is as a journalist. My first job is as really telling this story, but it's not a dry story to tell. You do have to sort of take readers on an emotional journey as well, and I, I hope I struck the right balance with that. You you never know, but I, I aimed to do that. I, I, I for one feel like you uh, you managed to achieve that uh, to an admirable extent. A last quick question. Uh, this is a story that unfolded uh, essentially a century ago and in a very, very different time and place. Uh, what do you see as its central relevance to us today? Well, I'm so glad you asked this question. Today being the start of Women's History Month is key. Um, I see the relevance in that, um, I'm very sad to say this, but that not enough has changed for women. And that that's pretty unfortunate that 100 years have passed and not enough has changed. That we're even going back. We're sliding back. And... If anything, this is a wake-up call. This, you know, this is a true crime book, but for me, this is a a wake-up call and a call-out, a shout-out for these are women's rights. Women are human beings, and it's when you have a situation where people are taking desperate measures, um, and it's 
still happening today or the conditions are still present today for many women in this country and all over the world. I think that's the relevance today. The book is The Angel Makers, Arsenic, a Midwife, and Modern History's Most Astonishing Murder Ring. The book is published by William Morrow, the author, Patty McCracken. Patty McCracken, I congratulate you on writing a really fine book. This was a complex story fraught with all kinds of challenges, uh, and I am very, very impressed with the work that you have done here. And uh, I, uh, I thank you for uh, not only the book, but for the opportunity to speak with you about it. Thank you so much, and best wishes. Well, thank you so much, and I've appreciated this time, and it's been an absolute pleasure to talk with you. I really appreciate it.